Well, hello. And as Clara mentioned, today is Church of the City Sunday. And so that's not a typo up there with the vineyard being a little smaller because we are celebrating as a church of San Antonio. And those of you who were with us last October 1st already introduced to this concept that Clara mentioned about God addressing often in the Bible the church of a city. Not the church that met in a certain building. Sometimes he talks to the whole body, but sometimes he talks to the church of a city. And so for a couple of years now at least, um, there's been groups that have been praying for God's move on San Antonio. And I won't get into all the reasons why we need him to come, but it would be a good thing. So um, last year over 100 churches participated in this. I've lost count this year. I know six churches actually worshiped together uh, this year. One of the things they did last year, and I suppose some probably did too, is they sent people out to the four corners of the city, north, south, east, west, and they called in with their cell phones, prayers, and praise to God from the four corners. That's something one church did. Anyway, it's pretty cool. Another church had, I think, 46 people dedicate their lives to Christ that day. So, you know, the Bible says that where there's unity, God commands a blessing, and you know it's true. But are you ready today to do something a little different? I hope so, because I've got an exercise for us. And before you get all dismayed, the physical part of this will probably only consist of maybe raising your hand once or twice. So I don't mean that kind of exercise. Um, but let's, before you do any kind of exercise, you need to warm up. So let's, uh, let's warm up a little bit. That's not what I mean, Kathy. Kathy's stretching now, but that's not what I mean. I mean stretching the brain, which is the primary muscle we will use today. Hopefully it will get to our hearts, too. We're going to play fill in the blank, and what's going to happen is we're going to see little sentences up on the screen that have a blank, and not yet, and you're supposed to, no, it's fine. Oh, you're kidding. Should we or should I skip it? Okay. The idea is this. Let whatever comes to your mind come to your mind and see what that is. So, for example, if the, se- no. if, if the sentence says sports are blank, some of you will think fun. Some of you will think boring and, and other such things. And because some of these things will be negative, this is why we're not shouting it out. See, this, this is the whole the whole thing here. Okay, so I'm going to read it just for the sake of the recording as much as anything, but let's start the warm-up. Liberals are... Jocks are... Skinny chicks are... Catholics are Pentecostals are the French are I repent Lord I repent Republicans are Bikers are 
politicians are. Okay, was there anybody who didn't fill in the blank at least once? Because, I mean, some things, you know, you don't, nothing comes up, and that's fine. You know, squares are square. <laughs> you know, okay. Here, here's the deal. We tend to have preconceived ideas about people. And that's not always a bad thing. If one of you got up right now and came towards me looking very angry and pointing a gun at me, I would quickly jump to the conclusion that you're dangerous. And maybe another person would stop and think, you know, I don't really have all the facts. Let me wait until I know what's going on with this person before I jump to a conclusion. But that could get me killed, so I'm not going to. And that's okay. You know, there's, there's room for judgment there. There's times when we have to do that. The problem is when we do it all the time. All the time we jump to conclusions and assumptions about other people and what they think and what they do and what they're worth. And Randy talked last week about how sometimes in a conversation with Clara, she might say one sentence, and from that one sentence, he assumes and projects and imagines all sorts of feelings and thoughts and plans on her part that are not true. They're just in his head because he's jumping to those conclusions from one thing she said. And we do that. And not just with what people say, but even who they are. Okay. And this is just what we do as people. This is what we do. We judge. And we're continuing. This is still part of the relational skill series. And this is an important relational skill, not just in terms of your one-on-one -on -one relationships, but relationships between groups, our impact on the kingdom, our impact on the earth. Learning to minimize this natural tendency is a huge relational skill. And so the actual exercise we're going to do, since we're in this judging mood, And normally in a trial, you have a judge. Well, that's, you know, we'll leave that to God. When there's a jury trial, usually the judge is more of a referee, making sure everything's fair. So you um, usually have a prosecutor. Again, this is, we're talking about a criminal trial. A civil case is where, like, one person's suing another, or maybe they're suing a company. A criminal trial, the state is bringing the charge. And they're charging someone with burglary, whatever. And there's a punishment for that if they're found guilty. Okay, so you would have a prosecutor, and then you would have a defense attorney. And it's interesting that, of course, God's the ultimate judge, but he has delegated a lot of that to Jesus. Don't have all the time to go into the scriptures about that. But Jesus is identified as our defense attorney. And Satan is identified as our prosecutor, who never takes a day off. That's actually what it says. Look it up. And today I'll play both roles just for the fun of it. And what we're going to do is we're going to judge someone who lived in the first century. Now, were any of you there in the first century? No. Okay. I'm not saying any of you look that old. Don't get me wrong. Okay, so I don't have to ask the second question, which was, were you there and could you read minds? Because that's about the only way you know what somebody really intended to do is if you can read minds. Right? And we're going to be judging the disciple Judas today. We're not going to be able to answer definitely whether he's guilty or not of what he's accused of because 
we weren't there. We can't read minds. But that's not the point. Okay, the, the question, excuse me, is, is there any other explanation? Is there any room for doubt? Okay. So welcome to the jury. Normally, the judge would give you some jury instructions that would take about 20 minutes to read, so I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to give you the highlights, which is the fact that somebody is charged doesn't mean they're guilty. Okay? We need to start this with a clean slate. So whatever you think you know about Judas, you've heard about Judas, put it aside. We're starting with a clean slate. He's innocent until proven guilty. You've heard that before. Um, that's not normally how our culture treats people. Usually, if they're even charged, we think, oh, well, the police must know. You know, must know that he did it, or otherwise they wouldn't have charged him. Not always true. Um, a mere preponderance of the evidence does not warrant the jury in finding the defendant guilty. Just because there's a lot of reasons to think he's guilty is not enough. Okay. Before the defendant can be convicted, you must be satisfied of his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And here's what reasonable doubt means. It's the kind of doubt that would make a reasonable person hesitate to act. Now, the word for jury comes from the word to swear. In fact, in Spanish, there isn't a second word. It's a swearing. I mean, just like you would say the jury came back, you would say the swearing came back. Okay, so you would swear this guy is guilty. You wouldn't hesitate for a second. That's beyond reasonable doubt. It's not beyond all possible doubt because, yes, Martians could have come and done it, you know. But that, that, that's not where we're going, okay? And so having explained that, the judge would now explain the charge. And the charge against Judas is treason. He's really charged with two things if you read the Bible. He's accused of being a thief and a traitor, the one who betrayed Jesus. Don't have time to do both. We're going to concentrate on the traitor part. Okay. Now, normally... We consider murder the, the worst crime of all, but that hasn't always been the case. Throughout a lot of history, treason was considered worse than murder. In fact, in English law, high treason was the crime that could get you killed. If you were a man, it could get you drawn and quartered. If you were a woman, it could get you burned at the stake. If they couldn't figure you out, they might hang you. <laughs> but that's the only crime that carried that stiff a penalty. In fact, in Dante's Inferno, you find that the very lowest level of hell is for Satan, where he has the wonderful privilege of being ground between the teeth of Satan forever. He's in Satan's mouth forever being chewed up. Don't feel bad. Satan has three heads, and he's chewing up two other guys too, but that's, that's something else entirely. Okay, so if this was treason against the United States that someone was being charged with, the prosecution would need to prove several things. Okay, they're called the elements of the crime. And according to the Supreme Court, there's four elements that have to be proved before, beyond a reasonable doubt. First, an overt act. Somebody did something. Testified to by two witnesses. At least a couple of people saw him do it. Three, manifesting an intent to betray the United States. And four, the act actually helped the enemy. So with treason, you're either waging war on the U.S. or you're helping those who are waging war on us. So in our case, for Judas, here's the question. Did he actually do something? Were there at least two witnesses? Did he show he, in he intended to betray Jesus? And did his act actually help the enemy? So, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you will now hear the argument of the attorneys. I was going to bring two different jackets, you know, but anyway. 
that, that might have taken a while. Okay, from the prosecutor. The prosecutor would tell you, okay, Judas is charged with being a traitor, with betraying Jesus. Let's see, what do we know about Judas? Well, we know that he was a dis- chosen as a disciple and that when the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are listing the disciples, they not only say he was a disciple, they say he was the one who betrayed Jesus. Judas, who would later betray him. Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Okay? So we know he was a bad guy right from the beginning. And we also know that he was a cheapskate and anti-worship. And he demonstrated this in the story when the woman with the alabaster jar full of precious ointment pours it over Jesus in this wonderful, loving act of worship. Well, who's there criticizing that? It's Judas talking about, you know, uh, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Okay. So he was the bad disciple. He was a cheapskate. He was anti-worship. And he was a greedy trader who bargained to betray Jesus for a certain sum of money. This is what we know. Matthew 26, uh, 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Mark 14 tells the same story, but it adds that the priests were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. And in Luke 22, it adds more detail. It tells us that what they needed was to know when they could arrest Jesus without a crowd being present because they were afraid of the people. They were afraid if we do this out in public, there's going to be a riot because he's got a lot of fans. So we need to figure out where this guy's going to be in order to arrest him when there's nobody else around. And that means we need an inside source, hence Judas. And finally, he was known for his apostasy which means a turning away from the faith. I think nowadays we call it a falling away. It means abandoning the cause. In John 17:12, Jesus is praying, and he says, While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. And with that, the prosecution would probably rest. At some point, I think someone might point out to you that that translation doomed to destruction is the NIV and it doesn't match up very well with the original language the the best match is son of perdition perdition is the opposite of salvation so salvation means being safe and being alive perdition means being lost and being destroyed and I, I like the message version that says except for the rebel bent on destruction I think that captures the spirit but anyhow After the prosecution would come the defense. And like Paul Harvey, they would tell you, here's the rest of the story. Yes, he was a disciple, and he was a true disciple. He wasn't the bad apple in the bunch. In Acts 1, verses 15 through 17, it says, In those days Peter stood up among the believers and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. doesn't say he was the bad guy in the ministry. He says he was one of us. He shared in this ministry. Also, he was the treasurer. He was a trusted member of the group, and he was also involved in benevolence ministries. Uh, John 13, 29, talking about the Last Supper and we're getting towards the end of it. Jesus tells Judas, you know, go do what you need to do, and Judas leaves. 
John 13:29 says, Since Judas had charge of the money, some, th- some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. Now, why would they think that? Because that's probably the kind of stuff that Jesus had him do, right? And this tells you something about his reputation and his demeanor. They weren't sitting around saying, ooh, what's he going to do? He's the bad disciple. Surely he must be up to no good. They didn't say that. They thought, okay, maybe he's going to go give some money to the poor or something. Okay. Also, he wasn't the only one who didn't understand what was happening when the woman poured out all that expensive oil over Jesus. And we heard one version of the story, but in Matthew 26, the story is told this way. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the, man of a ho- of a, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. It was the disciples, in this version, that are upset. Now, could it have been Judas that voiced that? Sure, but the point is he wasn't the only one. This wasn't something unique to him. What she was doing didn't fit their paradigm, and they were all confused by it. That doesn't prove by itself that Judas was this cheapskate who was anti-worship, didn't want anybody to love Jesus. And he was under the influence of Satan. And if any of you have ever battled with that kind of oppression, you know that he wasn't entirely choosing what to do. Luke 22, uh, verse verse 1 through 6, talks about Satan entering Judas. In John chapter 13, it says, The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And so besides having that pressure on him from the devil, who's probably confusing his thoughts, it's obvious that what happened is not what Judas intended. He was not intending for this guy to be sentenced to death and crucified. And we know that because in Matthew 27, you see that he's so overwrought that he commits suicide. Matthew 27, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priest and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. And so besides being one of the disciples, not the bad disciple, and a trusted disciple, and one who was battling pressure from Satan, there's also the fact that there could be another explanation. And the defense doesn't have to prove that this is how it happened. All it needs to show you is that maybe there's another explanation besides the fact that he intended to get Jesus killed. First, let's look at the language. And at this point, the defense would probably bring a language expert or two up. The word betray means to hand over. It's used some 50 times in the New Testament. It's always translated to hand over, except when Judas is part of the sentence. And if Judas is part of it, then they say betray, which has a lot more emotional connotation to it. But in the Greek, there's not two words. There's one word, hand over. He handed him over. He showed the priest where he was. It doesn't use the word betray, as we know it in the English. And so here's another theory of what happened that night. And the theory is this. In the Old Testament, which is the only thing that the disciples were familiar with, the New Testament was in the process of happening, 
the coming Messiah is spoken of as two things. One is the lamb, the gentle lamb led to slaughter on our behalf. But he's also described as the Lion of Judah, the conquering king, who's going to squash all the bad stuff and all the bad people and reinstate heaven on earth, essentially. And so they've got these two conflicting ideas. And I don't know that they could really figure those out. I think it's still hard for us to figure those out. I think we've come, after a couple thousand years, to an understanding that Jesus came first as the Lamb. He was crucified as a sacrifice for us. But then he rose as the conquering king, having the victory over death and all its darkness. And everything that's happened in the last 2,000 or so years is part of that conquest. And we're carrying that out. And we're reclaiming the land and letting the captives know, hey, you're free. Jesus won the battle. You're no longer a slave to this other nation. And it all climaxes with Jesus coming again for a second coming and then everything being made right. That's, in a nutshell, something that took me 10 or more years to understand. It would have been hard for them to have that understanding 2,000 years ago and before he resurrected. And let me tell you a little more about Judas. He was probably the only disciple that was not from Galilee. He was from Judah, which was to the south. The Galileans were known as the Hicks. The people from Judah were more the educated class. And that probably explains why he was trusted as the treasurer or the bookkeeper, because he had those skills. And the important Jewish leaders probably only saw him out of that whole bunch. They probably only saw him as the real proper Jew. Okay, the rest were those hick fishermen and that crazy Jesus guy. He was probably also a zealot, and that was a group that had some real ideas about what was going to happen and how this Messiah conquering king was going to come in. And they were driven by these ideas. Essentially, they believed that if they managed to turn Israel back to God and incite a war or a revolution against Rome, then the Messiah would come and take over and everything would be wonderful. And that understanding resulted from misinterpreting many prophecies and ignoring the prophecies about the Messiah coming as the Lamb and not understanding the timing of the second coming. And, okay, we can be critical of that, but it's hardly the worst crime in the world. If it is, there's hundreds of thousands of people who have also misunderstood, and I don't claim to be the one who can tell you what all those prophecies mean. Something that might, if, if Judas believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and I think we could safely guess that all the disciples did, And he saw him in the temple just a few days earlier when Jesus basically had a one-man riot and turned over the tables and whipped things and said all sorts of stuff. You can see where he would be expecting that Jesus was that conquering king. Okay. And so could it be that Judas thought he was helping Jesus to fulfill his destiny by turning him over to the priest? Because then would come that confrontation where he would, you know, step forward as the conquering king and wipe everybody out. And even if he didn't do it at that point in time, well, what's the worst that could happen? The charges against Jesus were ridiculous. They were totally unfounded. There's no way he would be found guilty. There's no way he would be executed. At best, the priests would look like a bunch of fools, and then maybe they would back off. Is it possible? This is what he might be thinking. And as for the 30 pieces of silver, 
it's interesting that just a few days before the whole incident in the temple, one of the key things Jesus was upset about was a temple tax. Well, maybe Judas is thinking, okay, by handing him over, I can get this whole thing started, and I'm getting some of that money back for the ministry that he was so upset about the priests collecting. Two for one? It's possible. Now, what prompted, the defense is going to stop there, but what prompted the whole, this whole lesson was that a few weeks ago, Randy took us through the scene at the Last Supper and had us imagine what that might have been like. And this is actually a technique that Jesus used. If you remember him t- telling parables and stories, often he would end with asking the people a question. What do you think the judge is going to do? Or which one of these two people do you think is going to be more, most grateful? And how would they answer that? Imagination, maybe? Putting themselves in that place and imagining? Okay, so that's what we did. And I can't remember if Randy actually said this or not, but I think he said that as, he, as Jesus was washing the disciples' feet and he got to Judas, Judas couldn't look at him. Now, one place you could go with that is that he was just so caught up in his guilt and remorse or what have you that he couldn't look him in the eye. That's not where I went with it. In my imagination, and I wasn't there 2,000 years ago, I don't know what happened, but in my imagination, Judas was so excited. This was the big day. He didn't want to give that away. I don't know if he was sure that Jesus knew what was happening, but he certainly didn't want to give it away to the rest of the people, and so he, he couldn't look at him because he was afraid he would bust. He was so excited. By the end of the dinner, Jesus has made it clear that he knows what Judas is going to do, and he even tells him, go do it. Okay, well, somebody tells me, go do something. I'm thinking I have their permission, their blessing, they're okay with it. They're not trying to stop me. Again, a thought. So let's look at the elements of the crime again. Um, did Judas do something? Yeah. Was it testified to by two witnesses? Yeah. Let's jump to number four, that it actually helped the enemy. Yeah, I think it helped them. I think they would have done it without him anyway. I think eventually they would have caught Jesus. But I'll, I'll, you know, give you that much. Here's the question. Did he show an intent to betray Jesus? Betray as in get him killed. Obviously, he intended to hand him over. That's what he did. But that betrayal goes much stronger, and he's been accused of causing Jesus' death. Is that what he intended? I don't know. So let's see what you think. How many of you are willing to swear that Judas is guilty of intending to get Jesus killed? And it's okay. We think so. No? Somebody's lying. <laughs> I'm prophetic that way. No. Okay. Yeah. You know, what a, what a concept. Okay. So maybe there's another explanation for Judas. All right, here's the transition, because this is all very, you know, interesting and all that, but how does it help me with my current life, right? Okay. Once we recognize our own tendency to judge, and that's, I think, a key um, realization. For me, it's something that runs in the family. I don't know if it's genetic, or it's cultural, you know, if you, if you grow up around people talking a certain way all the time, you end up thinking that way. Or if it's a spiritual thing, I suspect it's all three. 
but there's a real tendency to judge people. And if you don't like the word judge, um, think of it as classifying people or condemning people. All of those words mean the same thing. If I'm classifying people into groups, and those are groups that I don't belong in, oh, those people aren't like us, I'm judging. I'll give you a very recent example. Yesterday, I was at a service dedicating this new building. It was an ecumenical service, primarily Episcopalians with some Methodists and Baptists thrown in. And I was thinking, gosh, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm going to have to hold myself back. Uh, you know, they, they don't really enjoy worship as much as we do, and so it's, this is probably going to be kind of boring. I saw the guy was named as a soloist, and I thought, oh, geez, I'm going to have to listen, and I can't sing, and, you know. Well, it wasn't. It was a worship leader. He just didn't have a choir with him, and the people really got into it. And I was convicted by that because for a large chunk of my life, I was in mainline churches. And where did I, how did I forget that they are also sensitive to the spirit? They may not have all the words for it, that they also love to worship. Where did I come up with this? You know, so I had to repent of that. Now, I wasn't judging them as far as saying, Lord, I know none of these people understand worship. You should send them to hell right now. It wasn't that kind of judgment, but I was, I was classifying them and seeing myself as different from them. And in a minute, maybe you'll understand why this is not good. There's a handout, and I should have pointed this out so you could take notes, but you probably found it already. In the back, there's some verses. This, this is not just to kill trees or to paper the floorboard of your car. The idea is that maybe during this week, you can look at some of these and ask God, you know, God, show me. Show me if I'm violating this particular verse in some way. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. I want you to look at the ones that are underlined because they talk about um, measures. It says, for with the measure you deal out, with the measure you use when you confer benefits on others, it will be measured back to you. That's in terms of blessing, but also in, in terms of judgment. For just as you judge and criticize and condemn others, you will be judged and criticized and condemned. And in accordance with the measure you use, to, you, you use to deal out to others, it will be dealt out against you. And we don't use that word measure very much. I mean, we use it as a verb. We don't use it as a noun nowadays. So here's the idea. If I am going to bless you, you're coming to my house, I'm going to give you good stuff, liquid gold, say. Do you want me to use this little one-eighth cup? Or would you rather have me use this eight-cup measure and just pour it on you? It's getting started. Well, I can use it a lot of times. Okay, now if I'm going to judge you, if I'm going to pour acid on you, you want me to pour it out with this little thing or this big thing? That's the measure you use. And, you know, you hear people say what goes around comes around. You hear talk of karma. Well, the biblical principle is that you determine the measure with which you'll be judged. It's the measure you use, the little cup or the big cup, for blessing and for judgment. And the ramifications of this aren't just your own life. We need to start thinking beyond just me and the people that are close to me. Everything you do affects the rest of us because we're connected. And what you do has an impact on the way God reaches or doesn't reach the rest of the world. Small example. David and I could have great relationship skills, get along perfectly. 
less business for Juan, but that's a whole other subject. Let's say we get along perfectly. But we have an attitude towards certain groups of people. And so as we're sitting down figuring out how to spend the money that's in our household, and I'm not calling it our money because it's God's money, as we're figuring out how to spend that money, we could say we are not donating to any charities that help gay people. Not going to do it. Okay. But what if God is wanting to provide for a particular ministry and he was wanting to provide for that partly through our bank account. We've just cut that off because we have an opinion. We have judged a group of people. Am I saying that's always wrong? No. I'm saying we need to check with God. God, what are the limits you're putting on who this money goes to? Does that kind of make sense? Um, And it's not just as a family, it's as a congregation, as a movement or denomination, as a city, as a people. You've got to think of relationship, relational skills in those terms, too. To the extent that we judge or talk bad about other members of the body, whether that's an individual or a denomination or a race or whatever, to that extent, you're hurting the cause and you're hurting the body of Christ. And because I've done this so much, it really hits me. Um, Look at the last scripture on that page of scriptures, James 4. This is the message version. Don't badmouth each other, friends. It's God's word, his message, his royal rule that takes a beating in that kind of talk. You're supposed to be honoring the message, not writing graffiti all over it. God is in charge of deciding human destiny. Who do you think you are to meddle in the destiny of others? That's James 4, 11 through 12. And I'm guilty of that. Research shows that the main reason people, at least in the United States, are turned off by Christianity is because they perceive Christians as hypocrites. And research also shows that we are. That most of the people in the United States who call themselves Christians, our lives are not any different than the people who don't call themselves Christians. Jesus said that people would know we were really on his team if we loved one another. That's John 13:35, And his prayer was that we Christians would be as close to each other as he was with the Father. John 17:22. And guess what? You can't really love somebody that you criticize. And you can't love somebody that you ignore. It doesn't work. And apparently even the earliest uh, Christians had a problem with this. Because Paul addressed this problem of us splitting into our own little cliques in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And it's interesting because we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as the love chapter. And that's great. But before you can love somebody, you've got to quit judging them. And you've got to quit seeing them as something that's out there. So I'll read from the message, starting in verse 12, and it's a long passage. I'm tempted to apologize for that, except this is the word of God, and this is what feeds us, so I'm not going to apologize. You can easily enough see how this kind of thing works by looking no further than your own body. Your body has many parts, limbs, organs, cells, but no matter how many parts you can name, you're still one body. It's exactly the same with Christ. By means of his one spirit, we all said goodbye to our partial and piecemeal lives. We each used to independently call our own shots. 
But then we entered into a large and integrated life in which he has the final say in everything. This is what we proclaimed in word and action when we were baptized. Each of us is now part of this resurrection body, refreshed and sustained at one fountain, his spirit, where we all come to drink. The old labels we once used to identify ourselves, labels like Jew or Greek, Baptist or Pentecostal, Vineyard or Catholic, slave or free, are no longer useful. We need something larger, more comprehensive. I want you to think about how all this makes you more significant, not less. A body isn't just a single part blown up into something huge. It's all the different but similar parts arranged and functioning together. If foot said, I'm not elegant like hand, embellished with rings, I guess I don't belong to this body. Would that make it so? If ear said, I'm not beautiful like eye, limpid and expressive, I don't deserve a place on the head. Would you want to remove it from the body? If the body was all eye, how could it hear? If all ear, how could it smell? As it is, we see that God has carefully placed each part of the body right where he wanted it. But I also want you to think about how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. For no matter how significant you are, it is only because of what you are a part of. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body but a monster. What we have is one body with many parts, each its proper size and in its proper place. No part is important on its own. And something just hit me. When a part starts getting really swollen, it's usually evidence of disease. Can you imagine eye telling hand, get lost, I don't need you, or head telling foot, you're fired, your job has been phased out. As a matter of fact, in practice, it works the other way. The lower the part, the more basic and therefore necessary. You can live without an eye, for instance, but not without a stomach. When it's part of your own body you are concerned with, it makes no difference whether the part is visible or clothed, higher or lower. You give it concern, you give it dignity and honor just as it is without comparisons. If anything, you have more concern for the lower parts than the higher. If you had to choose, wouldn't you prefer good digestion to full-bodied hair? I know you have to be over 40 to really appreciate that one. But The way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church, every part dependent on every other part, the parts we mention and the parts we don't, the parts we see and the parts we don't. If one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. If you're watching TV and you see that another member of the body of Christ is hurting, usually evidenced by acting bad or talking bad. If you talk bad about them, you're adding to the hurt. We're supposed to be adding to the healing. Just a thought. If one part flourishes, every other part enters into the exuberance. You are Christ's body. That's who you are. You must never forget this. Only as you accept your part of that body does your part mean anything. And I'm a visual person. Here's the picture that makes sense to me. This, you see the scaffolding because this is a stained glass window that's going up in a cathedral currently under construction. When it's done, it'll be 40 feet long, showing the resurrected Christ looking over the city of Houston. The reason this makes sense to me is because it is made up of little pieces of glass. That's what stained glass is. 
And to me, that's a good representation of the body. If those pieces are separated, then you just have a pile of shards of glass. And it's useless. And it's not beautiful. And it doesn't give you the image of Christ, which is what we're supposed to be in the world. And you might get a little bit of light shining through one piece of glass. But even more than that, it's dangerous. It can cut you. We need to be together and working together in order for people to be able to see Christ and see his light shining through us. And if I say, okay, I'm a brown piece of glass and I'm only going to hang out and worship with other brown pieces of glass, then we have a pile of brown pieces and a pile of blue pieces and a pile of white pieces, and it's still not the image of Christ. It's interesting that this is a work still in progress because the body of Christ is still being built up. So we're going to transition now into praying for the city. You have these little purple flyers that have some ideas on how to pray. And what we're going to do is have you come up, or I can bring the mic to you if it works. The idea is to pray for our leaders, especially our spiritual leaders, to pray that we would recognize, that we Christians would recognize that we are one body and work together, that God would forgive us, for where we have held the kingdom back, where we've been rebellious in this matter of judging others and saying to other parts of his body that we don't need them. And we're going to pray that he would come to our city with power. Not just our congregation. When we did this last year, we had set aside 15 minutes, which is part of what we were asked to do as part of this day, And it turned into 45. And it was powerful. We will stop the service after 15 minutes. There will be time for ministry prayer. And if people are still praying for the city, we can continue doing that as well. But I want you to to encourage you to connect with God and, and see what he wants declared over San Antonio. Come on up. Raise your hand. Lord, your word says to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. And Lord, I just want to speak on behalf of the leaders of the city of San Antonio, especially the um, what we in the church would refer to as the secular leadership. Just all leadership at the highest levels in every department of the city, the police and fire department, the municipal area, the city council, the mayor, and every part of the city government. Lord, I just want to repent on their behalf for every decision that's ever been made that was 
made in favor of the world and not in favor of the kingdom. The kingdom of God. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness. Lord, your word also says that the hidden things will come to light. Lord, I believe we have already seen that in some of the downfall of our some of our city leaders in recent weeks. Lord, I ask for that to continue, that process to continue, that you would cleanse the leadership of this city. That you would cleanse the leadership um, in the municipal area, but Lord, also in the church. It's fascinating, Lord, and the the survey results from last year's Church of the City effort. Showed that the smaller churches wanted more of God, and the bigger churches wanted more money. for their programs and all of the man-made stuff that you did not create or inspire. And so, Lord, I just, again, on behalf of every church leader throughout this city, Lord, I want to repent for every decision that was made to support the world view and not a kingdom view. And I ask that you would turn the heart of every spiritual leader in this city back to you, that each one would remember their first love, and that they would remember what got them there. And that the way in is the way on. Help them to not lean on their own understanding, but to lean on you. The rock who doesn't move. Lord, I pray that you would help um, each of the Christians in our workplaces and in our communities, Lord, to find each other. That we would be able to start working together to reach those who are lost in the areas that we live in, in the areas we would work, uh, where we do our schools, um, Lord, in our activities, Lord, that we would no longer stand back thinking we're the only ones, that we would take the courage to find others who we can join with and others who can make a difference with us, that we would not be alone anymore, Lord, that you would break down the boundaries of isolation, And all that tells us that we are different because there are others, Lord, 
And I pray that we would come to light and that we would stand up and join together. Father, I pray that uh, that you would help us all realize that uh, all the blanks, Mariella had named all different groups and there were blanks. And Father, I pray that you would help us really understand and realize that what could have gone in those blanks for every one of them is that they're dead. They're dead and you love them. Lord, help us to know that Jesus said that I came to bring life and to bring it abundantly. Life to dead men, to dead spirits, so that our spirits would be alive to the living God. Lord, help us to understand and to reach out to others who really are dead men walking Lord, they really are. Give us a sight when we look at people that they're dead. And that we have life to offer, Lord. Father, we know that uh, dead men don't need help. They need you. They need life. Lord, give us boldness. Boldness to to proclaim your gospel. Set us free from the grip of the enemy that would put a hold on our tongues, put a hold on our spirits, have all our attention be on survival, And business as usual, day by day. And Lord, on trying to help in the ways of the world, rather than in the power of your spirit. Help us to say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. And it is not God's desire that any be lost, (laughs) but that all be saved. And there's nothing, even if, you know, I, I, I thought about intentions and motives. You know, even if they intended it. Paul intended to kill the Christians he killed, even if they intended it. It's not beyond God. I ask, Father, that you reach out across this city and draw the unbelievers, Lord. Draw them to you. Let them know life and not live in death. Bring them to life, Father. Raise them from the dead. And help us to be a part of their life.
Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. I was so struck yesterday, Bill, and I went to the river walk, and lots of people having fun and spending money and, you know, rolling on the river. And then we went to the bus stop because we took the bus. <laughs> and we stepped over people that were <laughs> that were lying on the pavement. And we we saw men and women who were talking to themselves and other people just. And you know, one isn't more dead than the other. The ones at the river walk are the ones on the ground. They need you. And you've chosen. I mean, you could have dropped it on them. You could have dropped tracks from heaven. <laughs> you could have. <laughs> but you chose. The body of Christ to speak for you. God, give us boldness. Give us truth. Give us power to live lives that manifest your love in us and through us and in other people. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Father, I just ask that you would break the curse that is over us as a people, that Christians are considered hypocrites. Lord, that you would change that. You would work in us, Lord, so that the body of Christ would be known for her love. Lord, the other thing I want to ask for this city, for our city of San Antonio, that, Father, we would live to see the jails emptied because people aren't needing to go in there anymore. That when they serve their time, they're set free and so freed that they never have to go back. And, Lord, that um, our crime rate would drop because people know the way and the life and the truth and will walk according to it. And so, Lord, I just ask for... um, Yes, your ways to be known and loved. Lord, we speak blessing on all of the individuals and the ministries that are working with young parents and with young people who might become parents. But Lord, for every child that's been killed at the hands of its parents or caretakers, because the church wasn't there to help them and support them and show them the way to be good parents. Lord, for every one of those, we repent now. And for every woman who's been faced with a decision of whether to terminate a pregnancy, because the church wasn't there to support her, Lord, for that we repent as well. Lord, we ask that you would pour out your mercy on this city and your power and that you would show each one of us how we are to live, that those numbers would change, Lord, 
that there wouldn't be any more dead children. And Lord, I ask that as we go through this week, you would remind us to pray for our city and that that would become a continual habit for us. That more and more voices would be raised up to you, Lord. Lord, you said that if your people who are called by your name would humble ourselves and pray, then you would hear from heaven and you would heal our land. And so we cry out to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Every Sunday, we also offer the opportunity for those who need uh, ministry prayer or healing prayer um, to receive that. The best way to get that is from people that you are connected to, maybe through a community group, so that you don't have to wait for Sundays. But we do offer that. And so if those who are trained in that and the community group leaders could come towards the front, then we'll dismiss the service. And if you need prayer, if the message touched something in you, or if you came in carrying some weight, please um, come talk with us. Thank you.